Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, just a couple more Sundays that we will be in the Gospel of John, and then we will be um, using June, July, and August to go through the parables of our Lord. And then we'll be back in John in September. So we'll finish out John 14, and we'll get a little bit uh, of John 15, and then we'll take a break for our summer series. John 14, just a reminder... Um, Chapters 13 through 17 are the upper room discourse, all taking place on Thursday night of the Passion Week. Five full chapters, one night, one conversation. And I just want to remind you that I personally believe that it's one of the sweetest things in all of the Bible that just hours before Jesus is going to be killed, he sets his heart, his mind, and his words on building the faith of his disciples, bringing peace to his disciples, and sustaining their joy. I just think it's one of the sweetest things. If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, and you knew you were going to die tomorrow by a horrific, torturous death, what would your mind be set on? My mind would be set on making sure I can have enough peace to sustain through that torturous death. But Jesus' mind is on his disciples. He wants to make sure that they have peace, joy, and faith as he's about about to depart and be crucified. That's really his aim, to bring peace, joy, and faith to his disciples. And we're going to see that in depth next week. Um, But for this morning, we're going to see the foundation of that aim. The foundation is the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are so many promises in the Upper Room Discourse. We've seen a couple of them already. Jesus has promised there's going to be a room in the Father's house for the disciples. That's really in chapter 14. He promises that he's going to come and take them to be with him. In the meantime, all of heaven's resources are going to be given, available here and now to his followers. All we have to do is ask, according to verses 12 through 14. Uh, Ask according to his will, in his name. He will provide everything that we need to have peace, joy, and faith in him. And then as we saw the last time we were together in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that he promises the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a Trinitarian way will always be present with the believer. And so now we come to uh, really the end section of chapter 14. And we're only going to be able to study two verses this morning because they are so deep and so rich. And they're the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the amazing aspects of his ministry. So let's see them in context of the whole. Let's start in John chapter 14, verse 16, and we will read 16 through 31 together. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? 
Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now, I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Father, these are magnificent words with rich promises that we even as we study this morning, we need your Spirit's help to understand. God, we don't want to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, while seeing, they didn't see. They didn't comprehend. So much so that Jesus has to turn to them and say, you do not even know the Scriptures. You are greatly mistaken. God, we don't want to hear those words. We are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. We love the truth. But there is such a way to hear and to preach without truly seeing the text. And so, God, I pray that your Spirit would give the gift of illumination to open our eyes to build wonderful things from your law, to see the amazing promises that are fulfilled in the Spirit's coming. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would honor you, that we would glorify you, that we'd magnify you, and that you would do what you love to do and point us to Jesus. And even as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper and and enjoy fellowship around communion, Spirit, I pray that you would convict us of sin and point us to Jesus, our advocate before the Father. So, Father, I, I ask a lot I desire so much for our church. And I know it can be accomplished by your power, by your authority, by your word. So I pray all these things for your glory, for our good, and I pray them in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. John chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. That's just what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus says in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. I've been with you, but, verse 26, I'm leaving and I'm going to send somebody else. Um, He already said that in verse 16 and 17, that he's going to send another helper. You remember, another is uh, not another of a different kind. This is another of the same kind. This is uh, exactly like Jesus has been doing. The Spirit's going to come and be a, a helper. So in verse 26, believe it or not, even though it's one little verse, we see four aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in just verse 26, there are four aspects. You can see three of them very clearly. Jesus says the helper, that's one aspect. Uh, 
The Holy Spirit, that's two, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, that's three, and will bring to your remembrance all I said to you, that's four. So they're they're clearly there, and I, I just want to dive in and unpack them together. Notice in verse 26, we have the entire Trinity. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, there's God the Holy Spirit. The Father, there's God the Father, will send in my name. There's God the Son. We have the Holy, the, the Holy Trinity together in this one verse. And so we're going to see clearly on display the Holy Spirit's ministry. Four aspects of the Spirit's ministry. Number one, he is the provider of divine help. He's the provider of divine help. Verse 26, but the helper, the helper... This is the word paraclete. We saw this already in verses 16 and 17. Paraclete from uh, two Greek words, uh, para alongside, uh, kaletos, to call. So somebody that's called alongside to help you, to be alongside you, to encourage you. This is an advocate, a comforter, a corrector, an encourager. And he is another. He's not the only one. 1 John 2 Verse 1 tells us if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. That's the same word, a helper. We have a helper with the Father, and that is the Son. So Jesus says, I have been your helper, and I'm going to be your helper in heaven, but I want to send a helper that will be with you. He's our helper. Again, we've said it before, but I praise the Lord that he saw fit to send us the Holy Spirit as a helper and not an observer. This isn't somebody standing alongside of us going, "Mm mm-mm. You got it wrong again. And when we say, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, don't do it that way. And they just just kind of stands there, watches us. He's not an observer. He's a helper. He wants to guide us. He wants to give counsel. He wants to give wisdom. He wants to help us. That's his job. That's his name. He wants to be our helper. But we can grieve him. Our sin can be an obstacle to the Spirit's desire to guide us. We can stiff arm him. We can silence him in certain aspects of his ministry with our conscience. We're never alone. He's alongside us. He's our helper. And that is a great, glorious promise. You guys remember the uh, footprints in the sand picture? So, growing up in the church, I saw that often. And... uh, you know the story, there's a, there's a picture and there's two sets of footprints and then one set and, and the guy says, why did you leave me when I was in trouble? I was in the worst season of my life and, and that's when I needed you to walk beside me and Jesus says, that's when I carried you. There's only one set of footprints because I was holding you, carrying you. When I was young, I thought that was just the cheesiest thing in the world. <laughs> like, really? Like, I felt like I could have written that and it was just kind of cheesy and Never really had much respect for it. Um, Now that I'm older, that's not cheesy anymore. Uh, I need somebody to carry me. I don't walk very well in the Christian life. I I can't walk on my own. In fact, we we sing a song. I love the song, Lord, I Need You. And in that song, there's a line, When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. And I personally really dislike that song. Or that, that line in the song. I love the whole song, but that line, when I cannot... As if there's ever a moment in my life that I can stand on my own. Not me, maybe you can, but I cannot stand on my own. I need a helper. 
And so he carries me. I think the majority of my spiritual life is just one set of footprints. I think the majority, maybe I have a couple here and there, and those are the bad moments of my life when I try, I can do this on my own, thanks Jesus. Jesus sent his spirit to be with us right now, to be our helper. What's our knee-jerk reaction when we're in the midst of trouble? Uh, I think we, we play a little, who wants to be a millionaire? We phone a friend. Man, life is difficult, phone a friend. And how often, when we phone that friend, do we just hear ring, 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 and then the voicemail, and we just go, oh, you're not there for me. It's okay to call a friend when you're in the midst of trouble. That's what the body of Christ is for, and praise God that we reach out to one another. But our first response in the midst of trouble should be to call upon the helper who's always with us. God gave us a helper, God the Holy Spirit, who is always with us. Call upon him. That's what he's there for. That's what he loves to do. Plead with him for help. He is our divine helper. Number two, he possesses divine holiness. So he is the provider of divine help. He is God's help to us. And number two, he possesses divine holiness. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Holy Spirit. There are only three times that we see in the Gospel of John the title Holy Spirit. One is in John 1, verse 33. One is in John 20, verse 22. And then the other reference is here in verse 26. This is the only reference to the Spirit as the Holy Spirit in the Upper Room Discourse. He's Spirit. As we've said in previous sermons, He's not a force. He's not an energy. He's a person. Why would many people take him to be a force, an it? I think there's two main reasons. I think, number one, the radical charismatic movement has um, loudly proclaimed him to just be an energetic force. I think, number two, quite honestly, the mistranslation in the King James Version of the Bible, Holy Ghost, he's this strange ghost-like person so then we just kind of well he's not a person he's just a just a force he's spirit but he's still a he he's personal he is a person the the word that's translated ghost in the king james version of the bible that's the word pneuma where we get uh, like pneumatology the study of the holy spirit pneuma means spirit it actually can mean the moving of air or even wind So some people would take that, in the case of the King James Version, ghost to say it's some form of energy that's moving around. The whole point of spirit, that word pneuma in the Greek, is to say that we see the effects, but we don't see the one that's causing them. That's the whole point of using that word spirit. God is spirit. He's a he. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. He's a he. He's not an it. So spirit is just experiencing the effects that he causes, but not seeing him with a physical body. This is question number six in our family devotion catechism. What is God? My kids would tell you, God is spirit. We can't see him. He is a spirit, but we can definitely see his effects. That's the point of calling the Holy Spirit spirit. But he's not just called spirit, he's called the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Since he's the Spirit of God, and since he is God, he has the divine attributes, all of the divine attributes of who God is. And if you were to ask 
most theologians, what's the highest, greatest, most glorious aspect of what it means to be God? They would say God's holiness. God's holiness is magnificent. It's not just sinlessness. In fact, holiness is a very weird attribute because in theology we kind of have two lists. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable, they're communicated with us. Attributes that God has that he communicates with us. He allows us to have a part in. He is faithful and we can be faithful too. He is just and we can be just as well. He is love and we can be loving as well. They're incommunicable attributes that only God alone has. Like all of the omnis, right? We are not omnipresent. We can't be present everywhere. We don't know everything. That's God alone, incommunicable. He doesn't share those attributes with us. So where does holiness fall under incommunicable or communicable? Where does it fall? It's actually on both. Biblically, in Leviticus, we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. So that's communicated. God is holy. And he commands that we be holy as well. But in Isaiah, Isaiah says, there is no one holy like you. So holiness is not just sinlessness, which God is asking us, do not sin. Be set apart from sin. Holiness is also, that's the communicable aspect of God's holiness. Holiness is also being completely set apart and other-like. There is no one like him. That is the incommunicable aspect of God's holiness. So, God's holiness is seen in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is holy. In John chapter 16, verse 8, and we'll get to this uh, in a couple months, but the Holy Spirit is the convictor of sin. It's another aspect of his ministry. Why is he the convictor of sin? As he abides with us, why does he convict us of sin? Because he's holy. His holiness enables him to convict us of sin because whenever we do something that is contrary to his nature and to who he is, there's a warning light that goes off. That's not like God. That's not holy. You must be holy. This is Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians. You wouldn't join God to a prostitute, would you? You can't do that. But every time you sin, you are engaging the Holy Spirit in that activity because he abides in you. He's holy. So he possesses divine holiness, and that is a great encouragement to us. One of the strangest and scariest things is to see a professing believer who is just not convicted of sin. Somebody who professes to know Jesus, professes to have the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. And whenever you bring up sin, whenever you say, hey, you might want to change this. I think the Bible says don't do that. They just, eh, it's no big deal. They aren't convicted. On the flip side, one of the greatest assurances that I have of my own salvation is that I can't get too far away from my sin without feeling incredibly guilty for it. The Holy Spirit is constantly convicting me of sin. And if if you're in the same boat where you feel convicted of sin constantly, that's an evidence of grace that God is speaking to your soul, saying, wait a second, I'm holy, be holy like I am holy, and he will not let you go. Now, it doesn't always happen. Um, There are many moments in my life where I want to stiff arm him, I grieve the Holy Spirit, I can quench the Holy Spirit. But then God will bring somebody in my life and speak into my into my life in a, in a way that the Holy Spirit says, see, that's, that's what I'm talking about. The Spirit is holy. 
That should be both terrifying and encouraging because he's also gracious and forgiving. He's the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says. The Father will send. So this is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But also to do his will. You remember in verse 13 we said, if you ask in my name, I'll give you whatever you want. We said that's not the Christian abracadabra. That is saying, if you are asking according to his will, of course, you'll be given provisions by the Father to do exactly what Jesus wants you to do. If it's in accordance with his will, you're going to be helped in that way. So the same thing is true here. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name to do God's will. He's sent in the name of Jesus because also Jesus is requesting that the Holy Spirit be sent. Father, I don't want them to be left alone, so please send the Helper. And just as Jesus came in the name of the Father, as the Father's emissary, so to speak, so too the Holy Spirit is coming in the name of Jesus. He's our divine helper. He possesses divine holiness. Number three, third aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He teaches divine truth. He teaches divine truth. This is the middle of verse 26. He will teach you all things. He will teach you all things. In verse 17... He is called the spirit of truth. And this is the fullness of that promise in verse 17. This is divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit is going to teach you what Jesus had taught them, but they failed to understand. The promise is to be taught Jesus' words and not other things. In fact, again, in John chapter 16, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says, When he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He's going to point to truth. He's going to speak the truth. This is what he's always done. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20, in the Old Testament, God the Father gave his spirit to instruct and to teach the Old Old Testament Israelites. So they are going to be taught by the Spirit. This is a huge question to them. They've been following Jesus around for three and a half years, and he's been teaching and teaching and teaching. They've been living off of every word that he's been saying, and now he says, I'm going to get out of here. Where are we going to get our teaching? Jesus says, you'll have a teacher. The Holy Spirit will teach you. He'll teach you all things. What does that mean? What does all things mean? You could just write in your Bibles, all things they needed to know. Not all things, all things. This isn't the Holy Spirit's going to help them with cellular biology or the mating habits of the duck-billed platypus. This is, this is that God is sending his Holy Spirit to help them know all things they need to know. All things pertaining to spiritual maturity and development. So, God says, look, I'm leaving. I've been your teacher, but I'm out of here. I don't want you to be left alone. I'm giving you a teacher, and he will take care of providing everything you need to know that pertains to your holiness, that pertains to your growth in Christ. If I were God, which you're very happy that I'm not, but if I were, if I were God, I would have said, after three and a half years, you should have understood everything that you needed to know, and you failed to understand it. Therefore, I'm not giving you any more help. You, you get an F, you flunked the class, you had three and a half years to get this right, and you failed. You're done. You clearly don't get it. I'm moving on. I'm moving on to somebody else, to something else. But that's not the attitude of our God. 
please know God is gracious. Three and a half years, these disciples are struggling. They still don't get things. They still don't understand things. And God says, don't worry, I'll give you another teacher who will help you understand everything. The disciples are constantly failing to understand what Jesus is saying. Remember, Jesus is in the boat, and uh, he says, hey, beware of the bread of the Pharisees. And instead of a disciple, this is where I would say, hmm, there's something in that. I don't understand it. Jesus, could you please explain what the bread of the Pharisees is? The disciples speak up and they say, nobody gave us bread. We don't have bread. Beware of the bread. Nobody gave us bread. Jesus, you're off your rocker. Nobody gave us bread. Constantly they're saying, wait, what you said makes no sense, so you're wrong. We're right. And Jesus, in his grace, says, I'm going to give you a helper to teach you so that you understand the things that I have told you. He is the teacher of truth. He is the provider of divine help. He possesses divine holiness. He is the teacher of divine truth. And number four, finally, he brings divine illumination. He brings divine illumination. He teaches truth. Then the end of verse 26, he doesn't just stop there. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus is answering a question here. This is a question that the disciples might be having. This is definitely a question that we have. How will there be a foundational, authoritative document or work or some authoritative work for the church? Jesus' words have been the key to everything. But if he's leaving... How will we know anything anymore? How do we know what to do? How do we know what truth is? And Jesus says, don't worry. What I've taught to you, I'm going to give you a helper who will enable you to understand and remember. Remember the truth that I taught you and understand it. I'm going to cause you to remember everything that you need to remember that I want the church to know. And I'm going to teach you the meaning of all those things. So two promises here. Teaching and memory. And if he's going to bring something to their remembrance, that means that they've already seen it and they've already heard it. We need this. They needed this. They needed this ministry because, frankly, I can't even remember some of the things that people told me yesterday. We're so forgetful. And Jesus says, hey, remember my words? They are going to be the foundation for the church. And I'm sure somebody says in in that moment, okay, wait, your words... Has anybody been taking video of what he's been saying? Has there been anybody recording what he's been saying? No, nobody's been recording. We're in trouble. If three and a half years of your ministry of words and teaching to us is the foundation of the church, all the disciples go, yes, amen. Wait, what? Hang on. We had to, we, we had to know all that? That's what the church needs to know moving forward? How are we going to remember that? Jesus says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit who will remind you Even what we're studying this very moment is a testimony to this truth. John's not sitting or laying down, reclining in the upper room, taking the Passover with his iPhone, recording a voice memo. John's not there taking the dictation of what Jesus is saying. John writes what Jesus said years later. How do we trust a human author's understanding of an event 
years, decades removed. I am not going to trust that. If it's just a human, I'm leaving significant room for errors, and exponentially so as the years go by. That's why God the Father says, no, wait, you're going to remember by God's omniscient authority, you're going to remember everything that happened perfectly. That's why we have four Gospels that perfectly match up. You're going to remember everything. How did John perfectly remember all of the exact words, the exact verb tenses of the words that we're reading that Jesus spoke in the upper room? He remembered them because of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So, yes, Jesus said, I'm going to send the spirit, and we have him. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We want to know. That's teaching. Things which we are also to speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit. So he's teaching us. He's illuminating our understanding combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That passage that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is the the job of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to teach and to bring to remembrance what God the Father and God the Son have said. So Jesus says, I'm leaving the Helper. I am leaving, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance everything that I said, You're not going to be without truth. You're not going to be without peace. You're not going to be without comfort. You're not going to be without the hope of heaven. You're not going to be without heavenly resources to help you. Not leaving you as orphans. Not leaving you without my presence. I'm not going to leave you without truth. You've had somebody that you've been following for three and a half years, and he's leaving, but I'm not leaving you without direction and guidance and truth. Now, Many people would say that those last two ministries of the Holy Spirit, that he teaches truth and that he brings illumination, only apply in verse 26 to the disciples. And I I believe that the majority of the promise only applies to them. They need to remember what Jesus had said so that they can write it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, amen and amen. But I think that there's a general promise to all believers, not just the disciples in the upper room, that the Spirit will be the resident truth teacher in our lives. I think there's a very specific promise here in verse 26 to illumination and to inspiration that only the disciples receive. But I think there's a general promise to us of instruction and illumination as well. J.C. Ryle agrees with that. J.C. Ryle says it this way. To confine this promise to the eleven apostles, as some do, seems a narrow and unsatisfactory mode of interpreting Scripture. It appears to reach far beyond the day of Pentecost and the gift of writing inspired books of God's holy word. It is safer, wiser, and more consistent with the whole tone of our Lord's last discourse to regard the promise as the common property of all believers in every age of the world. Our Lord knows the ignorance and the forgetfulness of our nature in spiritual things. He graciously declares that when he leaves the world, his people shall have a teacher, and then J.C. Ryle says, and a remembrancer. Somebody to bring to your remembrance everything that God wants you to know. You have, I have a resident truth 
teacher. What does he do in teaching us? He explains the words of Jesus. He explains the scriptures. It's not some mystical, esoteric ministry where you have to be in some secret society or secret club to understand the Bible. This is just, if you're a faithful student of the Word of God, as a believer, the Holy Spirit will give you understanding in the truth of God's Word. You will know what you need to know, when you need to know, as you are studying His Word. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27. John writes, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know that. You have an anointing. What's the anointing? Some people make this out to be very mystical or very uh, miraculous in an external way. Verse 22 explains the anointing. As for you, or verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. What's the anointing? The anointing is a a divinely given uh, aid to be our resident truth teacher. That is the anointing. You have the Holy Spirit who teaches you. The anointing is just very clearly the teaching of the Holy Spirit such that you can understand the word of God. He is the steward of truth in our souls. Turn to 2 Peter. You know this passage. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's going to pick up on these words as well. John and 1 John 2 verse 27 said, you have all things through the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 3, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So knowledge of God, how do we know him? Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. There's that all things in John chapter 14. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Okay, how do we get that knowledge? How do we make sure that it's true? This is verse, 20, uh, verse 16. Drop down to verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly devised fables or tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't stuff we made up. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We were there with him. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure than even having Jesus in front of you on the Mount of Transfiguration, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. But know this, first of all, this is of utmost importance, Peter is saying. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is question number five in our family devotion catechism. Who wrote the Bible? Men taught by the Holy Spirit. That's Second Peter chapter 1, and that's John 14. The Spirit is sent to teach and to bring to the remembrance everything that Jesus said, so they perfectly remember it and can record it and write it down. They needed that truth and that help And if they needed it and they were with Jesus for three and a half years, how much more so do we need it as forgetful people? We need it. The Holy Spirit is the, I love J.C. Ryle's way of putting it, the remembrancer of old truths, not new doctrines. He brings old truths to our remembrance so that we can live according to them. So if we have the truth, 
and we have the one who wrote the truth, then who's going to give us an understanding of what it means? The one who wrote it. My sweet children draw me pictures all the time. And those of you who have ever been drawn a picture by a three to six, seven-year-old, you know that when they bring it to you in all of their excitement, they say, look, Daddy, what do you think? The first answer you have to give is, what is it? (laughs) I've started to not do that with my daughter because she's getting older. And and I think, like the other day, she, she drew a camel. It looks like a camel. And if I brought it before you, you would say, oh, that's a camel. I said, that's an amazing camel. That was the first thing. Look at my drawing, Daddy. This is amazing. Oh, that's, a, that's an amazing camel, Chelsea. And she goes, it's a dragon. <laughs> so, I forgot to ask my first question. What is it? She is the author of that picture. So who's going to give me an understanding as to what that picture is? She will. So too, when we come to the scriptures, if we go, oh, I know what this is. With pride and arrogance in our heart, we we think we're smart enough to understand spiritual things. With a physical brain that we can understand spiritual truths. No, we have to come like we do almost every Sunday together. Somebody told me one time, you pray the same prayer every Sunday. I, I, I think I do. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I would behold wonderful things from your law. I need that verse because if I don't see clearly from the Spirit's understanding being given to me, I won't see what I'm supposed to see. So I come to the Bible and I say, God, what is it? I need to know. And you're the author of this book so that you can tell me the point of it. That's why Peter says, it's not a matter of your interpretation. So what? Of what you think it means. It's authorial intent. The Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. And it means exactly what it means because of the author's intention. So, The Holy Spirit is our helper. He possesses divine holiness. He taught and illumined the understanding of the disciples to write these books. And he is the same teacher and illuminator of our own understanding of this book to this day. So if the Spirit is holy, and if he inspired this book, and if he is God, and he cannot make errors because he's God, then this book is absolutely reliable. It's been preserved, it's true, it's reliable. Be amazed that you have a Bible. Be amazed that you have this book. Get up in the morning and rejoice that God's perfect revelation is in your hands. We were talking about this last night doing our family devotions. We started in Genesis 1 again because we read through a little kid's Bible and we finished and we're starting over another little kid's Bible. God spoke the world into existence. How did God make the world? He spoke it with his words. And I asked him, what do you think those words sounded like? Were they big? Were they loud? Were they a whisper? What do you think it sounded like? We don't know, but we know that they were powerful. All he had to say was, let there be light, and something happened. All he had to say was, let there be whatever he wanted to be, and something happened. And I said, his words are powerful, right? They're huge. They're enormous. They bring so much power. And guess what? This book contains his words. His words that that created everything we see, they're in here. So this book is equally as powerful and magnificent. This book is an amazing book. There's a great 
a book by a guy named A.W. Criswell called Why I Preach the Bible is Literally, Literally True. I want to read a rather lengthy quote from this amazing book, but it's on the Bible and it's on the amazing nature of God's Word. Criswell says it this way. The Bible is written on two continents in countries hundreds of miles apart. One man wrote one part of the Bible in Syria, another man wrote another part in Arabia, a third man wrote another portion in Italy and in Greece. They wrote in the desert of Sinai, in the wilderness of Judea, in the cave of Adullam, in a public prison in Rome, on the Isle of Patmos, in the palaces of Mount Zion, in Shushan, by the rivers of Babylon, on the banks of the Kabar. Such a variety of places and circumstances were the various bits of this strange mosaic created. No literary phenomenon in the world can be compared with the Bible. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Some writers wrote hundreds of years after or before the others. The first part was written about 1,500 years before the man who wrote the last part was even born. The authorship of the books of the Bible extends through the slow progress of nearly 16 centuries. When we think that the nation of America, when he was writing, is not 200 years old, it's almost unbelievable that the authorship of the Bible covered nearly 16 centuries. The Bible is written by men upon every level of political and social life, from a king upon his throne down to a herdsman, shepherds, fishermen, petty politicians. Here are words written by princes, poets, philosophers, fishermen, statesmen, by prophets, by priests, by publicans and physicians, by learned men in the wisdom of Egypt, by men educated in the schools of Babylon, by men trained at the feet of rabbis like Gamaliel. Men of every grade and class are represented in this miraculous volume. The circumstances under which the book was written were sometimes most difficult and almost most varying. Parts of it were written in tents, deserts, cities, palaces, and dungeons. Some of it was written in times of imminent danger, and other portions of it were written in seasons of ecstatic joy. Not only in background and in circumstances do the authors differ who wrote the Word of God, but they also display in their writings every form of literary structure. In the Bible, we find all kinds of poetry, such as epic poetry, lyrical poetry, and didactic poetry. We also find every kind of prose, historic prose, didactic prose, theological prose. The Bible will be partly in the form of letters, and in the form of proverbs, and in the form of parables, in the form of allegory, in the form of oration. Every kind of style and type of literature we will find in the Word of God. In light of this brief review, here's his point. In light of this brief review... It is thinkable that any book written in different places, languages, and literary genre by authors out of varying cultural levels and circumstances could ever come to be one volume, an organic whole. So what would we naturally expect from such a background? We would expect whole areas of discord and all of it utterly lacking any basic or organic unity. In point of fact, what do we find? We find the most heavenly and marvelous unity of any book on the earth. Every part of the Bible fits every other part of the Bible. There is one ever-increasing, ever-growing, ever-developing plan pervading the whole. And so for Chriswell, he says, that's why I take the Bible to be literally true. Every word is true. And we know from John 14, every word has been given by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, the Bible awakens faith. This is not just what the Bible is, what the Bible does. It awakens faith. It gives, it's the source of all of our obedience. It frees us from sin. It frees us from Satan. It sanctifies us. It frees us from corruption. It empowers godliness. It serves love. It saves. It gives joy. It reveals God himself. 
Therefore, the Bible is the foundation of my entire life, my entire ministry, and my hope of eternity with God. The Bible is everything for a believer. So take your Bible. Hold your Bible in your hand. In your hands, you have the very words of the living God. You hold the word of God. You hold the truth in your hands. So my question is, what are you doing with it? You hold God's truth in your hand. You hold the words of God in your hand. What are you doing with it? Are you showing yourself to be approved as a workman who is not to be ashamed? Or are you choosing sleep over scripture? Are you actively involved in fellowship with others who know the word and can explain the word and can help you grow in your understanding and knowledge of the word and of the Lord of the word? If you're not, can I just encourage you? You just need a taste. This is hard work. It's hard work to mine the depths of the riches of God. It's hard work. But number one, I would say, nothing good in life ever comes easy. And number two, I would say, the Bible never yields its treasures to lazy people. And if you've looked, maybe even years, at this book, and you've read Bible plans, and you just, I don't get it. I don't get why everybody's so excited about it. I'm not excited about it. It just seems like a big textbook. I would just plead with you to to keep asking God to open your eyes to behold the glory of God in this book. Because once you get a taste, once you get a taste, you're never going back. Once you get a taste of God's glory in this book, you're going to be so excited to get up in the morning. And yes, even if you're not a morning person, you're still going to be excited to get into this book because you're going to see God's glory. If you haven't tasted of his glory, if you haven't seen it, don't give up. It's here to be found. And it's here to be understood because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, both to the apostles, the writers of Scripture, and to us even in the present day. God, thank you so much that you have not left us alone. You have given us your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. And we love it. We are so blown away that we hold the very words of God in our hands. Men and women over the years have died to preserve this word They've died because they even have this word. Everyone around us knows how powerful this book is. They've killed people because they don't want the power of this book in their hands. God, may we, every day, taste and see that the Lord is is good. May we, every day, see the glory of God as revealed in Scripture. May we not give up. May we not grow weary. God, I pray for encouragement that the helper would help even now with those who in their heart of hearts, they might be discouraged because they've never seen your glory on display in the Bible in a way that that they've tasted and they've seen and they, they can't get enough of it. God, make us a church that would be gracious, that would just continue to encourage as your Spirit encourages us. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, even now, would be our helper, would do the work that he loves to do to be our helper, to point us to Jesus, to renew our hearts, and to give us a passion for him. We pray it in his name.